So this is your opportunity to kind of grill, I think, three incredibly diverse roasters, but actually all aiming for the same thing. I think we've seen in their presentations, quality's um, super important, evolution is super important. I think with, with Tim, we have something a little different from his presentation, the roaster that's talking about farming, which I'm sure there's still... I heard the questions upstairs, so I know that you've still got some for him. So would anybody like to kick us off with a question for the panel? Has uh, anybody got something they'd like to start with? Fantastic. Thank you. You've saved my life. <laughs> it would be a very long panel session with me just asking questions. Uh, hello. Uh, thanks, uh, Anati. So you talk about copying, testing the coffee and everything in your roastery. But what about the water? Because uh, Bifidina is my favorite, by the way, by Five Elephant. And uh, I brew it with different kind of water, different temperature to extract some sweetness, body, and etc. But uh, if I take any coffee, and I see on the coffee, on the package, it says, for example, peach and chocolate and whatsoever, and I drink it, I make it with my water at home, I never really get what is this. So do you put, uh, do you uh, actually um, test your coffee, cup your coffee with different kind of water, or just with one kind of water? Um, and different temperature also. Yeah, good question. Uh, we don't do different temperatures because there's there's multiple ways to factor TDS and extraction, and and temperature is for me the most uh, um, irregular one, meaning that I rather change my grind size than my my temperature. And there's really no need to change both of them because they have the same um, they have the same um, um, result on the coffee. It's just basically changing how much you you dissolve, right? Uh, it's not really changing anything else. You can't, really, you know, you can't do. You can't go very low in temperature. You can't go very high in temperature. It's not really, you know, doing anything special with the coffee apart from actually changing the TDS of the coffee. Um, uh, cupping wise, that's really tricky. Uh, I can say for now that we're using um, a stable water that is measured every time we cup, meaning that we know the exact values of that water, which is important in terms of we we track. Like I know we tracked every day we cupped the last year. So I know exactly how many times I cupped, which date, how many cups, average score, uh, water, uh, if it's sunny outside, if it's in the morning, in the afternoon, and so on and so on, to kind of see if there's any pattern there. And um, adding in a in hundred different waters for me to approach my roasting style is, like at the moment, it's, it's not doable. To our wholesale accounts, we do give very precise um, recommendations. But naturally, end consumers across the world, like we ship to China, we ship to the US, we ship to, it's gonna be very different. Uh, and at the moment, we don't have a solution for that, no. But we, we um, roast our uh, coffee based on one water. Yeah. Tim, could, to, to yourself, I mean, how are you cupping um, in the shop and uh, what things are you changing? Uh, I cup. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, cup, I mean, somebody sets it up for you and you come along and cup it. That's what happens. No, no, it? I actually do it myself. Yeah, um, nice. Uh, Keep it real. <laughs> no, we sort of grind the same for all the coffees in a TDS range that I prefer. Uh, strength, uh, temperature, we try to always keep the same on the water. The water, we have the, one of the best waters in the world, I think, in Oslo. So we don't really have to manipulate that. And uh, Yeah, I find that... Um, you know, our coffees will taste different in other countries that are using RO and stuff, but uh, 
I find also that a good roast normally tastes good in different waters. So uh, the one uh, one exception is that uh, like if you go to Copenhagen and brew water with the uh, brew coffee with the uh, water from the tap, everything just tastes like uh, earthy monsoon Malabar. So uh, of course you need to treat your water, but uh, yeah. So I, I recommend reading Maxwell Colonna's book, and uh, it's a very dense and uh, a heavy book, but uh, it will give you some idea of how you can manipulate your water uh, to get the peach flavors out of uh, the five elephant coffee. And and Stefan, I guess you know you you're, you've obviously cooked in different ways. Yeah. Uh, um, you've obviously you're cooked in different ways from your garage going through to actually being in the coffee. I mean, what has changed in your cupping protocol as you've gone through? Yeah, the thing is, uh, I was only using tap water because I really didn't understand there was a huge difference uh, when you're using different waters. I think three, uh, four years ago, most people in here would just go, oh, you stick a filter on it, it's fine. Yeah, so don't worry, you I, weren't I, alone. I, I, I heard <laughs> things about how in Italy, in some mountains, the coffee was tasting better, but it seems you worry and you don't really take them for granted. But what happens really, what's really changed, uh, what I do is I use, uh, now I use um, uh, water from a bottle of uh, Vol Volcania, or I don't remember Volvic, because okay. But at least I have always the same uh, the same water, and so I want to have always the same parameters for cupping. Then what happened is that with the book of uh, Maxwell and uh, and uh, Brian, uh, who is uh, Brian came, who used my coffee uh, at the Brewers Cup. He really looked into the, really read the book. He, he spoke like for an hour with Maxwell and he came to my home and he was like, I have a big table, wooden table, and it was full of different waters. And with always a little bit of change between, yeah, what I saw is that yeah, with the standard one, if the coffee is good, like he was saying, it's good. But then it start to increase or change a little bit. So yeah, if at the start your coffee is good, even if your coffee, your water is different, it will always taste good, unless you have yeah, a real problem in the water. But you can only go up, up to a certain point in the terms of uh, quality in tasting. But uh, you, you, you can go and say, and I don't go and say, uh, I go less and less on my uh, uh, cupping notes on the website saying you will taste peach and thing because everybody is different. If you never tasted a peach and you say, there's this peach in there, do you drink it? And no, I don't, what, what is peach? So it's, it's a complicated matter. I'd rather say it's well balanced, uh, you have a long aftertaste, uh, acidity is this way. Uh, it's. Yeah, and it tastes like coffee, good coffee. <laughs> so well, okay, that's, that's great. I, I, I'm going to take the opportunity to ask you three guys a question. Well, mainly actually, um, Tim and, and and Patrick. So you, <laughs> yeah, snatch it away. <laughs> Stefan very candidly in his presentation said about the monsoon Malabar thing, and I, I, I also admit that I won some monsoon Malabar too. So we can belong to the same club. But is there anything you guys have done in the early days that you wish you hadn't, that you could change? You know, like you know, th those steps where you kind of learn as you evolve and, and get better. Is there something that you've done that you kind of, not so proud of that now? I, I know you've got one, Tim, for sure. So I know you have. My last tamper tantrum talk. <laughs> no. Um, the, the first coffee that I liked, 
uh, was Monsoon Malabar. So I'm uh, uh, I'm proud of that. I think I noticed the difference. <laughs> uh, but uh, and I sold a lot of it, and then uh, the more I learned, uh, the, the less I enjoy it. I uh, haven't tasted it in many years, but it's still in the market in Norway, and a lot of people like it. And I don't. Who am I to say that that's wrong? It's a fantastic gateway drug. Yeah. It's a great way to get people involved into coffee. It's like try a little bit. This is different, and then they ask questions and want to know more. I think. Yeah. yeah. I know that I've enjoyed uh, over fermented coffee before, like uh, washed over fermented. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry for selling that to you. <laughs> even I, <laughs> I even bought some of it uh, here, but uh, yeah. So you always make mistakes, but the more you learn and develop your palate, then, you know. It's fine, but uh, I regret that one thing. I see Patrick's deep in thought here. He's uh, going back into the memory hmm, how much He's looking for something from Dimitato desperately. How, how, <laughs> should, how much should I reveal? Um, well, I can say this, which I think is um, on the subject of understanding as well, is that you know I've been roasting Robusta. I've been roasting really low-graded commercial coffees or whatever that is. Um, um, some in the companies I work with, but also some uh, simply because I want to. Because you should, because I work with coffee. It's coffee. Coffee's a huge range of different stuff. And as a roaster, you should, you know, have experience with all of it. And, like, sure enough, like, I remember one of the first, like, big cuppings, I actually was with Brian at, at Damateo, just a shitload of table with a lot of different coffees, and he went through and he cupped it, and he just blind cupping, and he named a lot of origins. And that was one of my first cuppings. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? And the, the main pitch is that, you know, we change. The palate changes. I don't like the same coffees or the same approaches that I liked a year ago, maybe not even six months ago, because it's it's different, right? So, um, you know, roast more bad coffee because it's important, because there's stuff you can learn there. Like a lot of specialty coffee roasters, I feel maybe don't really like, what is a coffee with a low moisture content? People would be like, well, it's around 10. Well, that's not really a low moisture content. There's coffee that has way lower moisture content than that, and you can still be drinkable, and then so on and so on. And uh, there's a lot of different features, a lot of different varietals, and I think knowing all of that will make you, in the end, a better roaster. So um, stop only roasting, especially coffee. I, think this is, I basically asked this question to have confession, but I actually had some coffee sent to me that was stored since 1973 um, and cooked it a uh, couple of weeks ago. And it was so interesting, so disgusting, but so interesting. Um, <laughs> Morton, uh, you're going to be talking uh, later. Um, you had your hand up, wanted to ask a question, so you can really pick on him later if he's horrible. So. <laughs> okay, this is um, yeah, a question for, for Tim. First of all, it's a fantastically interesting project. Um, so, but I just uh, want to hear something about uh, uh, some implementation aspects that I that didn't really. Uh, perhaps here or uh, so I have some questions about you know it's clear enough that you've got you know the the bioprotection uh, function from the bacteria on on the uh, you know the the, the leaves uh, but then there's also you know the soil how do you apply uh, the right bacteria in the soil is it also the liquid that will just you know go down or you know because it's two different purposes that they they play bioprotection on the leaves and then in the soil is the symbiotic relationship with the roots to provide nutrients and water to the roots and back uh, the microorganisms get sugar so that's a perfect symbiotic relationship but isn't it a uh, how is that uh, you know how is the right microorganisms going to the to the roots okay so i mentioned the two applications with water um, 
first of all, the compost extract, that where you only extract compost into water and then apply it. Uh, it's only meant for soil because then the organisms are not really growing, so they won't stick to the leaves. So if you want to stick them to the leaves, you have to have them actively growing and adding food to the extract and also aerating that sort of brew. And you brew for like 48 hours or 24 hours to increase the amount of organisms in that compost tea, that is the foliar application. The way that uh, organisms work is that uh, you make the compost with the proper balanced food and uh, of course, that uh, food, the, the organic material, is decomposed by the microorganisms. So when they have a lot of food, they will reproduce. So you're actually, with a compost pile, growing organisms. That's what you're doing. And attracting predators like nematodes and amoebas. So when you extract that into water, uh, you use a tea bag that has a 400 micron uh, mesh. So the organisms are able to come out. So you apply them on the soil, and they will you know, start moving down. Okay. downwards to the soil and when they find food they will start growing of course uh, if they have this very anaerobic layer and they don't really grow there the aerobic ones so they need to build structure before and get oxygen oxygen in in order to grow but you can also apply it with a injector so the most efficient way will probably be to inject compost extract below the compaction layer yeah. and also above and then obviously adding compost will really boost in so a lot of times uh, what Elaine recommends when you start a farm is to actually till the soil for the last time. Because tilling really disrupts the fungi, hyphae, fungal hyphae and all the life in the soil. So till one last time, but till in good compost. Yeah, because the, the problem is your mi microorganisms are very uh, aggressive to each other. So if there's already a dominant micro uh, yeah, uh, yeah. culture in there, you have to kind of uh, give the other an advantage in, in number or in, you know, we have to kind yeah, of take that's over. That's what you do with the compost extract. So you yeah. have to extract enough organisms yeah. so that, uh, you know, overapply. There's no way you can overapply. Uh, so you, you probably organisms. have a question, uh, and the question being, when have I done enough to make this at a dominant? Uh, uh, is there anything that uh, way you can measure that? Or? Yeah, with the microscope. So uh, typically I will take uh, uh, apple core take a sample of the soil in between the drip line of the, the plant and the, the stem and then you have a 1 to 5 dilution in uh, water uh, put a droplet on the microscope slide and then you see yeah. actually what kind of organisms are living in the root zones of your tree yeah. and if you're for instance lacking fungus or uh, nematodes or something then you really need to encourage that by making better compost or like a protozoa infusion where you take like hay and just infuse it in water spray it. Uh, so there's a, yeah, you use the microscope as a measurement. Uh, and there's a, there's a spreadsheet you can use to actually count the biomass, so how much fungal biomass you have, how much bacterial biomass you have, uh, which is kind of difficult when you've never done it before, but it's, it's fairly simple once you know the system. Um, so you can over time see if you're moving in the right direction or not. And then you can take a, let's say you have a really heavy rain or some uh, you know, floods or whatever. Of course, you then need to go in and correct by boosting with the organisms. Great. So you're actually farming the soil more than you're farming the plants. Does anybody else think these two gigs need to get a room? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it was, a, it was a good question. Just like, yeah, you lost me halfway into the start of it. Um, <laughs> no, no, it was good. Um, Patrick, turning this to you, I mean, obviously, you, you 
you've been out onto farms and been buying. Have, have you kind of ever wanted to have like Tim has his perfect playground now to do this project and to be able to do all the things he's dreamed of? And I know I go on farms and I'd love to get producers to do things, but I dare some because I'd kill their crop and ruin their yield. Have you ever wanted to do something like specific on a farm, like a project? I think the it, it gets complicated, sure enough, but I don't think that everyone, you know, it's, it's a lot of resources, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of focus. Um, and then, you know, right now we, we roast coffee, we don't farm coffee, and it's a huge difference. And I think one has to have a lot of respect for how, how different that is. Sure enough, it's extremely connected, but it's also, um, I find it very hard to, to us at the moment to have time to do both things. But we are, we are doing some interesting products now, um, starting off both in Brazil and Kenya. Uh, where we naturally want to do something, but it, it takes time to realize uh, what you want to do, how should you do it, what is the most sustainable way. Like it's easy going down and just buy something for someone, and people are happy. That's easy enough, and I think everyone can do it. But um, um, it's definitely really interesting to see how much we can contribute with in terms of you know making a coffee taste the way we want, making everyone you know get the the right working conditions and so on and so on. Um, so in the in the future, yes, but we have a huge respect for how complicated that is. And and Stefan, I mean, you're obviously buying in a different way. Um, but have you? How are you developing the relationships of people you're buying from? Yeah, uh, it's a matter of volume. Yeah, you can just go. <laughs> I saw that the time that I can go and buy one or two bags. It doesn't work like that. So uh, when you start to have a certain amount of volume then you can already speak about what way can you do to improve or to 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 do it the way i would like to, to see it but uh with the volume i have today it's impossible to do uh what he's doing it's but it would be a dream of course uh and yeah i think you it's difficult you are right it's difficult to go to the producer and say oh do things like that but you're not there. Yeah, you you have to 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 go and, and visit the farms in these countries like Colombia or Ethiopia. It's not farms, but uh, it's a different thing. But they have a really hard times, uh, hard jobs. Uh, if you go and ask them to change something, and you you you, <laughs> you you do something, you make them do something wrong. You you ruin more than one year of their life, and they have kids. They need money. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's complicated matter. More questions? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. This kind of feeds off this actually. So kind of you mentioned uh, like, and we all understand quality and or good. What we perceive as good coffee is linked to the green coffee, the roast, and also the way it's brewed. So looking at the industry as a whole, and this is for everyone, um, which one of those things do you think is the weakest link? What we should be focusing on improving. The brewing, like the training bristers, equipment, stuff like that. The roasting, do we need to roast way better? Or the farm, which one is maybe the weakest? How many farmers are here? No one? So, I mean, for me, green coffee obviously has a lot more potential because uh, very rarely do you see a room full of farmers discussing how to improve quality. Yeah, I mean, like that. That's that's very that's very very simple, and it's something that I've thought about. I, I had some hesitations, um, actually coming coming down here after the events. You know, as we all know, last week, and and um, it puts everything in perspective. And like anyone who would answer brewing to that question is probably a bit fucked up. Like it's it's 
it, it is because in the end of the day, it's just coffee. If you actually want to make a change for someone, you go green coffee. Period. Sure, roasting you have a lot of exmissions, you have a lot of things you can do in you know production lines and so on to improve that. Uh, but in in a bigger picture, that is way more important than a single cup of coffee. Uh, it's green coffee. That being said, you should not stop improving everything else as well. But yeah, Stefan. Uh, green coffee. <laughs> No, Excellent answer. Thank uh, you. <laughs> uh, on not only producing it, but uh, even processing it. Uh, I think there are still a lot of things to, to understand in terms of uh, processing, both washed, uh, semi-washed, uh, etc. A lot of things to be learned, scientifically uh, uh, studied. If anybody wonders why Tampa Tantrum is going to get an explicit rating on iTunes now, it's thanks to Patrick swearing. So uh, <laughs> we're very grateful for that. Although I think Colin in his presentation in Manchester started off with fuck up in. So um, yes, question down here. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot for all your presentation. Um, my, so you spoke a lot about the soil so, and uh, about shading. I was uh, wondering whether you have a, a question about shading. And um, third, uh, second point would be about um, uh, you said we don't have so much inputs to buy, so it would be maybe cheaper uh, to have uh, this coffee made, uh, which is uh, a very intensive maybe in the kind of labor, and labor is something uh, some uh, is uh, uh, a, a big issue also um, labor task uh, work workers big issue in coffee in, when you look uh, at, uh, at coffee in a general term. And then uh, my next question is mainly for the roasters. Um, so today, price of coffee is very low. Uh, it's like uh, 120 uh, uh, cents uh, per uh, pound. And it's very low for, uh, for good coffee producers. And uh, there is uh, this talk about coffee that says, uh, and there is a lot of great job from the baristas to increase the value of the coffee, and it's great. Um, so how is specialty coffee going to evolve in terms of price when you look at the price that are so low now? Uh, because you obviously know that in maybe in two years would be very bad uh, in terms of general quality, even with the good uh, coppers, good uh, producers. So yes, that's, do you see my, my point? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, uh, I think this price, uh, this pricing in specialty, because we have this talk about uh, coffee price, that is uh, uh, with specialty, the, the coffee is going out of the market, but still it's really linked with the market. So I think, what is your opinion on that? Sorry. I'll ask very, I'll answer very quickly the, the shade. I've, I've planted already eight different kinds of shade trees, and uh, we, on a farm, you need to regulate the shade depending on how much sunlight you have and so on. So every farm needs a little bit different amounts. Uh, but I'm trying to increase the biodiversity uh, on the farm. The second question being labor costs. Yeah, but uh, we don't have an increased uh, amount of labor uh, compared to a conventional farm. Actually, probably a little bit less because we don't have to weed. Oh, in the future, I don't have to do a lot of weeding because the weeds won't grow there. They don't like that kind of soil. Um, I don't have to apply, you know, a lot of uh, pesticides all the time because you you do it just a couple of times a year. I don't have to buy any inputs because I just use whatever is on my farm, which is the best way to do it. Um, 
about the price, uh, the way I work, I work uh, long term with same producers. We uh, look more and more at the cost of production because we ask them to do extra steps to produce the quality we want. Uh, only picking ripe, you know, sorting, drying in shade for 30 days instead of in the sun for six days. And all these things add cost to the, the product. And we also have to calculate the coffee that I don't buy that is produced in the same way. So we just uh, discuss the price and look at the costs and we have like a minimum price. Uh, and then we can also increase the price if the quality is fantastic or if we add more costs. So uh, yeah, that's how we work. I don't really look at the market price because uh, I think long term with the farmers and if you, if you put your ha hand on your heart and say, I'm proud of the prices I'm paying and the farmers are happy with those prices, they will stick with you. Uh, because they know that even if the market goes down, they will still be there and paying the same price, even if they have a, have a bad year. I think that's an important point to bear like market price. I actually didn't know the market was down that low. Uh, the show's last time I checked it. I, it's, I, we work in a very similar way where it's about a long-term relationship, you know, cost of production plus a premium, and whatever that premium is, what they think it's worth. And, and then that, that dictates how much volume you can buy. So if there's a massive premium on it, you may only buy 30 bags. If there's, you know, a, a more reasonable premium, you may be buying 120, you know, or whatever. So I think market price in specialty, we really shouldn't be talking about it anymore. I mean, it has no bearing on the cost of production of specialty coffee. But it has huge impact in uh, the social impact in the producing countries. So sure. we see that when the, the prices are up, you know, everyone plants coffee and stuff. And when the prices are down, they don't can't afford to even pay pickers. So uh, you have a lot of these social issues that are really affecting the security and uh, also the livelihoods. Yeah. And I think that's why it's more important to try and remove as many people from that lottery of the price roller coaster um, because of those things. It does have such a massive impact. A, a, a story about market that I always roll out was when the market was at 310, we had a contract that we'd signed four years earlier for um, $3 a pound and the market was at 120 and it came around. I was like, I, I did the email. I was like, okay, we're going to have to talk about the price. We'll obviously have to up this. It was the final year of the contract and the producer said, no, I'll sell it you at $3 a pound, 10 cents less than I can get at market. But when we renegotiate next year, we're really going to talk about this. <laughs> you know, and that, that's, again, removing people from that market discussion, I think, is super important. Um, Patrick, I mean, obviously, you're buying coffee from importers. You're also buying some directly as well. How, yep. does, that, um, how does that affect your pricing structures when you're, you're setting up those things? Well, th I think at first, a very simple answer to the question is that we... People that have followed Five Elephant have seen coffee from the same producers for quite some time, and then you guys are going to keep on seeing those coffees. Um, we try to do that as, as much as we can. Um, for sure, it gets complicated sometimes because sometimes the coffee isn't good. Very easy. Uh, we still need to buy it, right? But we have a market that wants really good coffee. So we talk a lot about end consumers not really understanding that change in coffee, but we have the same issue with wholesale accounts not understanding that change in coffee, right? So it's a, it's kind of a, a bigger step, but um, trying to move over to buying as much as we can direct these days, um, whatever that is. Um, but having a structure with um, actually prices that, as Tim says, just you know, talk to the farmers, realize what they have, realize what they need, and see if you can give it to them. If you can't give it to them, then you should probably not go in there right work with farmers that you you agree with and like 
It's like everything else in the world, right? You need to work with people that have the same ideas and values that you have. And if you stick with that, you probably do pretty good. Stefan, I mean, you're buying from importers. What? How do you kind of have uh, those conversations? I, I was just like you uh, when she said it was a uh, 120. I didn't know because I just don't look at it. I never bought uh, coffee as high as this year. Uh, the prices were on, uh, on specialty markets. You know, when really I, I totally understand the, the social parts. It's a, it's a big problem, of course, that can affect Indian specialty. But uh, the only thing that we can do is switch more and more producers to do uh, specialty grade coffee. And then with what is not specialty, because when you grow uh, 15 hectares of uh, coffee uh, for three months, uh, you produce, not all your lots are specialty. So the one that can have a premium will have this great premium and the rest, you sell it at the price. But we need to, yeah, we need to grow in order to, to change the producer to, ch to, to make more specialty grade coffee. And this is the only way we can uh, eradicate this thing. But uh, I really yeah, I don't look at the, the market prices. I didn't know it was this low. Before we move on from this, I'm going to just chuck another one in. There's a, the, the one part that the market price does have, we have one contract with a producer in El Salvador that produces a lot of coffee on the farm, and their specialty is probably about hundred no about 250 bags and they have about another 150 bags that really isn't specialty and we don't want anything to do with but we don't want it to appear on the market with the same farm name with somebody else so when the market actually drops we do have a price agreement because they have to sell it on the market that will pay more for the 250 that we're buying so because of the impact on the 150 bags of that commodity grade coffee so thanks for the great news <laughs> Um, any other questions? Gents, um, this is a size matters question. Right, so you, um, fortunately, in a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you represent three different uh, roasteries of three different sizes, one can say. One thing that's been sort of on my mind in the last couple of years is with uh, the growth in specialty coffee and uh, the demand for specialty coffee roasting, uh, some roasters have, have experienced you know, very high rates of growth. And what I've noticed as well, with these high rates of growth, uh, I'm not talking about you three, but I'm talking about with people who have experienced you know, very explosive growth, uh, that the quality has suffered uh for various reasons maybe because they're hiring staff and uh, you know uh you know different roasting staff they can't all be there uh you know the transmission of knowledge isn't is uh, you know uneven uh, you know i mean there, there are lots and lots of different factors and i was wondering uh whether you're aware uh you know or, well, how big is too big uh, whether you find that that is a problem it's something you're aware of uh whether you whether you, your 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 focus is quite simply on quality do you draw a line at the number of customers or, or the number of kilos that you want to roast? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I, I can't. No, my, my volume is so low that it's difficult to answer this question. Uh, do you, do you at some point, if you, I think that if you really stick to a really good quality control system, and you train correctly, you take the time to train the people. Of course, if your growth is very big, it's maybe more difficult. 
but it's possible to, to, to still uh, have uh, very high quality coffee. But uh, yeah, I'm maybe uh, <laughs> better. You have better answers to, to that question. I just buy another coffee company when it gets too much. <laughs> I mean, uh, people think we are a very big roaster, but we're not. We buy about 25 tons a year, which is, has been the same for the last three, four years. And uh, I think uh, a certain size, uh, like being too small, is difficult because it's difficult to source your own coffee, so you're always depending on importers. Being too big is difficult because there's not enough of that exceptional quality that you probably could buy when you were smaller. Uh, so there is a sort of balance there, but uh, if you're very strategic and smart as a company, I think, yes, and if you want to keep high quality, sourcing, having a good sourcing program uh, is so necessary because that's the core of your business. And uh, we see more and more demand for great coffees, and if your company is growing fast, you know, it will be more and more difficult to get your hands on those coffees unless you work long term with producers that you like. Uh, yeah, so I, I have also seen this happen with companies growing too fast and the quality suffers because they changed to, to a bigger machine. They didn't have time to really focus on improving the raw skills on that type of machine. And all of a sudden they had to buy three more containers because the volume grew and, you know, so it's, it's like, um, you're constantly chasing your tail and uh, letting the sort of volume run your company instead of you running the company and, and planning it. You know? So uh, Square Mile did, uh, I remember a couple of years ago, they just said no to new customers because they couldn't. They couldn't handle the growth. And I think that was a very smart move because they needed to consolidate the service they could provide and the quality and so on. So growth is not everything. I, it, it costs money to grow as well. And can I add to the sourcing part that you also mentioned there, Tim? And I think it's really important that we kind of get involved in this whole, we have to buy direct trade. We have to have everything bought directly from producers. I'm really happy that I buy from some really good importers. I'm really happy that I buy from some exporters. And I'm really happy with the direct relationships we have. I think you need to have a mix of those in a portfolio to grow successfully and sustainably and not have those blips in quality and drops because you need to have not all your eggs in one basket. There has to be lots of places you can source coffee from. Um, Patrick? Not true, and, and I think, um, like I think all of us are, are interested in, in, you know, how can we do really awesome stuff really big? Of course, like why not? Um, more importantly, because no one is really doing it. Uh, and I think part of the issues here is that, you know, you start out small and then you grow big and you treat your company the same way. Um, like this is more for me an organizational perspective than a coffee perspective. Being that you need to rethink your staffing, you need to rethink your quality control systems, you need to rethink your buying, all of that really. So there's no reason why really good stuff shouldn't be able to scale. Uh, do you want to be totally gigantic? Well, probably not. It's probably exhausting. It's a lot of work. Uh, you need to be really big. And, and nothing in terms of a company is linear. Meaning that every company goes through phases where sometimes you just need to work. You need to get the shit done because you need to do this. Um, and sometimes you have a lot of breeding space. You can focus a lot on getting better. You can you know, look into producers, look into roasting, look into a lot of stuff. And then you come into a new period of time where you kind of need to, okay, so I'm in my bubble, I do my stuff, I just need to do it, right? So, uh, so it's a process. And I think um, my, my biggest interest in coffee is, is, well, I like coffee, but I'm more interested in, in structuring organizations in a way that we actually can cope with quality. Because I think that that's something that um, there is a kind of, we don't understand that good enough. 
we're not good enough businessmen, we're not a good enough uh, strategist, uh, in terms of we do, we don't know enough about financials, most of us. Um, and we need to have all of those features with us to be able to ensure a growth where you know we actually can handle it. Um, but yeah, um, as Tim says, what Scrama did was a really smart thing. And then uh, we have a few kind of points in terms of volumes where we also would like to stop. There is a plan. Uh, we don't want to stop forever, but we want to stop, reassess, discuss. Can we do this with what we have? What do we need to take the next step uh, instead of just continuously growing and growing? It's very difficult to become incredibly wealthy with a small company as well, so it's, it's important to keep growing. Um, any other questions out there? We've got time for one more question, so this is your last chance. Come across. Hello, guys. Um, looking at the rosters, but as a brand, how do you... How do you think, because you ship coffee everywhere in Europe, some in the world, and how can you maintain the, maybe the quality of your brand when it's being extracted in China or somewhere else in Europe? How can you maintain this quality and, and focus on the brand quality? Well, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm a firm believer, like we, we want to do what we perceive as really awesome coffee, and I want the people that enjoy drink our coffee, perceive it as, as really good as well. That being said, I don't think any roastery, Tim may be the exception, but apart from that, there's no other roastery that actually makes money based on what's inside of the bag. We don't. Like, we don't make money of it because people can't really differentiate it. Um, we don't, you know, there's a very, very few roasters in the world that are so fucking good that they can get away with it. There is. There is a few roasters and there's a big chunk of the rest of us. And um, in that kind of chunk, we, we don't really compete in terms of um, in terms of the quality of the coffee. We compete in terms of branding, um, in terms of communicating, in terms of talking, um, in terms of, of trying to help our customers do as good as they possibly can. Our solution to that is, is just simply communication structures. Talk to people. Um, as much as we can all the time. Track everything, keep every single data there is. We keep enough data, as much data on, on roasting as we do on sales, as we do on uh, customer relationships, all of it, evaluating it, trying to get better. Uh, so I think branding today is, is um, unfortunately probably, but it's more important than what's inside of the bag. Um, and that, that makes it very vital for everyone, I think. Tim? Uh, I'm not trying to please everyone, so there's always going to be a lot of customers in my store that don't like our coffee, and even if we try to do our best, and I, I, I'm not the one to police every single person or company that buys our coffee and, how, and instruct them how to brew it, because people have different preferences and so on. I think, I believe, like, uh, the coffee uh, movement has evolved so much, so uh, when people get a bad cup of coffee of your brand and have heard about it, they don't really, they don't necessarily think it's because of the coffee anymore. Uh, because they know that the barista matters, they know that there's a lot of factors. And a lot of people brew their coffee at home and they probably do a terrible job at brewing somewhere. But they still like the coffee and I mean, that's great. But for me, branding is, it's a very easy way to secure the integrity of your brand is that you try to do your always try to do your best 
and uh, communicate what you're doing on social media and everything. And then, uh, yes, there will always be some critique and, you know, this coffee is thin and it uh, tastes like tea and, yeah, it does. Fine, you know, you can't please everyone. So I think the idea of being that sort of uh, authority that polices everything about your product is just not realistic. If, uh, if a farmer delivers tomatoes to a restaurant, it's not his fault if the food in the restaurant is bad, you know. It's, uh, it's the chef's fault. <laughs> You're so Norwegian, Tim, I love it. <laughs> Please, Stefan. Yeah, um, I don't think I need to sell a coffee bag in China, uh, not to be sure how, how it's going to be treated. I'm 100% sure, sure that a lot of my standard customers just don't know anything about uh, which percentage, we, how many grams I should put. They just own a filter coffee machine. They put uh, <laughs> a spoon of coffee in the morning and extract their coffee. Uh, it looks like they prefer this one than another brand. It's not like I went and said, well, I will make a brand that will make a, a roast like that. People seem to enjoy it. And that creates the brands. Yeah, I can put any uh, how many uh, hundreds, uh, billions of euros saying I have the best coffee. In the end, if it goes like shit, sorry. <laughs> uh, it's okay, Patrick sorted that one for us. <laughs> <laughs> it will still be bad coffee, so yeah, I don't, uh, I don't really try to create anything with the brand. It's it creates by itself, just by the the amount of work you put in it. The, the, what you do on your coffee to make it taste good. But one interesting note that um, in, 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 in the context of, of, of policing, which is absolutely accurate, a lot of people are very, um, almost almost sometimes kind of demeaning to the customers in terms of, well, you don't have this, or you don't have this, or so I don't care how my coffee tastes because you don't have the right stuff to make it good anyway. Especially with water. It's interesting with water. Water is so important, but we still have to understand that we're not really good at brewing coffee. So factoring in the variable of water makes this a lot more complicated than it was before. And it's interesting, you know, like what I've done the last year and what is, what is kind of cool is that, you know, you, you talk to your customers, you ask, do you like this coffee? And, and uh, the people that come back and they say, well, yeah, I really love this coffee. What you do is you ask, well, how do you brew it? And it turns out that a lot of the things that I know about brewing is, is not based on what I've done. It's based on what they do. Right, because there's huge potential of feedback in terms of how they treat the coffee around the world, and I get a lot of inspiration from from China and how they approach stuff because it's so different from what we do. Uh, or you know, even sending up a you know bag of coffee to Sweden that's also kind of different depending on where it is. So there's a tons of potential in terms of knowledge, and um, we like we all need to respect that having all of these awesome equipment and, and whatever that is, like it costs a shitload of money, um, and um, it, it takes time to develop that, and good coffee is, you know, we all like different coffee. Can I, can I also add to that? Is a, 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 an experience I had with one of our previous customers, they're not anymore, uh, but I went in and I had a coffee and they served it to me and they didn't know who I was and I drank it and I said, this isn't right. And I got told, oh, you probably haven't got the palate to understand it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also a story, I went into a coffee shop and had a really bad example of the coffee served to me. And I said this wasn't good, and they were really apologetic and gave me great service and wanted to make it better. 
and we put a lot of effort and energy into training them. So we actually went in and did some training and did some focusing. So I think you can teach somebody to pull your coffee well. It's very difficult to teach somebody to be nice. Um, so, um, a fantastic panel, guys. Thank you very much uh, for, for your input. Please round of applause to our speakers.